What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of the Dream Chasing 101 podcast. Today we're going to be tackling a very important topic and with us today we have Daniel. I'll leave it up to Daniel just to give us a bit of context to who he is and what he does. So yeah, Daniel, go ahead. Thanks guys, I'm Daniel Kapilis. I am a medical scientist. Um, My speciality is in genetics and vaccinology. Um, I have done all my degrees at uh, Wits University in South Africa and... um, I'm currently doing my master's degree in vaccinology, uh, and I've had the privilege over 2020 to work on uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine trial here that was that was hosted at Barra, uh, Barra Gwanath Hospital in Soweto, Johannesburg. Um, and yeah, I'm uh, very keen to to share some knowledge about vaccines, about how they work, what they are, and uh, hopefully we can just get a bunch of you guys who may have some concerns or doubts just to feel a little bit more confident in the situation and and hopefully more confident in your decision to take the vaccine when it's available. And Daniel, before we jump into that, we just want to get to know you a little bit better. So when you were growing Perfect. up, when you were around 15 years old, you know, did mm. you see yourself doing this or, you know, what was your dream job back then? <laughs> I actually, throughout school, I dreamed of being an engineer. I just wanted to be an engineer. And, um, you know, I, I realized... Um, I think a lot of school kids have uh, a very romanticized idea of what a lot of professions are. Mm. I realize having, you know, I started an engineering degree. I started a degree in biomedical engineering at Wits. um, And I very quickly realized that engineering in reality is not what I thought it would be as a child. And and that's why part of the reason I, I really love this podcast that you're doing, because it gives young kids a, a really realistic idea of what different professions are yeah uh, and i really think it's an amazing thing you're doing man so thank you for that um but yes yeah, so i i i the whole time my group of friends and i there were like five of us the guys at school we all wanted to be engineers you know i wanted to you know i just wanted to make cool stuff that was like <laughs> what i wanted to do um and i was always passionate about biology and medicine and the human body so i decided to apply for a degree in biomedical engineering uh, and I started it and um, it took me a couple of years I, I did it for two or three years and uh, and then just eventually got progressively more depressed with doing the wrong degree I didn't like the uh, the way it was shaping me I didn't like the direction it was going I didn't actually enjoy the work and eventually I had to you know I, I managed to get the courage to say to my parents guys, I, I don't want to be an engineer anymore. And, uh, and this was a big shock to them. They, my parents are both lawyers. They're both professionals. They wanted me to do a, a professional type degree. Um, and they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I actually just want to be a scientist. And my mom said, well, what the hell does that mean? You know, like, what is, what is a scientist? <laughs> and I said, no, I want, to, I want to answer questions that we don't know the answers to. And she said, okay, but when someone asks you what you are, what are you going to say? I'm going to say, no, mom, I'm a scientist. And she said, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know? um, but I, So I transferred to a degree in, biomedical, in, in, uh, in biological sciences uh, with majors in human physiology and genetics. And that's where I found this absolute passion for genetics. Uh, just the idea that there's this little molecule inside every living being that codes all organic life and it's so small, but it's so significant. And it's just, it just blows my mind every day. 
And, uh, and that's where I then finished my Bachelor of Science degree and then did an honors degree in uh, genetics. And my research focused on population genetics, looking at the, the associations between genetic mutations and vaccine responses with uh, a vaccine that is for a virus called rotavirus. And, um, and that's where I fell in love with the idea of vaccines, preventative medicine and public health. And now I'm doing this master's degree. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned how you had to kind of tell your parents that, you know, this might not be for you. Was that difficult in, in a sense that you were scared of? You mentioned that they are like working professionals. Did you ever think that mm. you're letting them down in any way? And how did you deal with that, with that um, emotion? Yeah, no, for sure. It was, it was a really difficult conversation to have. And, and I, I wanted to have it for a long time before I actually did. Um, and, uh, you know, my, I, I got a real sense that, um, that my parents were really proud of the fact that I was going to be an engineer, you know, and my mom mm. also, she spoke about her son going to be the biomedical yeah. engineer a lot. And, um, and I, you know, it was also difficult for me to communicate what I was going to change to because, you know, as I was saying, you know, saying you're a scientist is a very abstract thing. You know, if you say you're an accountant or you're a doctor or you're an engineer, people know what that is. Exactly. Um, but so it, I think initially, I think my parents had a few concerns uh, about what, what was I actually going to be doing? You know, would I be able to support myself? What life was I going to have? Um, and, um, and it took them a little bit of time uh, to kind of understand what I am doing now. And I think there was there was definitely a bit of friction at the beginning, um, and it was really hard. And, and I kind of got to a point where the way I dealt with it was basically by, I had a conversation with uh, an older friend of mine at university who had kind of gone through a similar process. And he said to me, Dan, at the end of the day, the only person who you have to live your entire life with is yourself. Everyone else in your life, in one way or another, will not be there forever. Yeah. And... Every decision you make, no matter how altruistic and selfless it is, every decision has to have an element of self-preservation. You have to consider your own mental health, your own well-being and your future. And he said, listen, even if your parents desperately want you to be an engineer, you don't and make the decision for yourself. And I, I knuckled down and I said, you know, this is, this is my life and this is a decision that I'm comfortable with and my parents will come around, they love me, they'll support me, and eventually they'll recognize that I've done the right thing. And they do. And now, you know, they are exceedingly proud of me. Um, they support me fully. Um, I mean, my mom boasts way more about me being a vaccinologist than she ever did about me being an engineer. And, uh, and especially with the pandemic, you know, I think that my parents yeah. have realized how important it is to have people who, who want to do this kind of work. And that brings me to to the next question is, you know, why choose the the world of vaccinology? You mentioned, you know, trying to make sense of, you know, a molecule being within everyone and how significant that is. And then why stray mm. into vaccinology and genetics um, specifically? You know, was there something that, uh, you know, because there's been a lot of chatter. I mean, some of the documentaries out there explaining pandemics you know a couple years back so it's not even like it happened during this time this chat has been happening for a while 
did any of that ever influence you or how did you come about to choosing this this field so um i actually never i i the 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 decision to go into vaccinology was quite a spontaneous one actually and um i mean being kind of in uh, you know with my training in my undergrad as a molecular biologist um i was always interested in those documentaries about plagues and pandemics yeah. and infectious diseases um but it was more out of interest you know kind of just for interest sake uh, and it was it didn't really spark a professional interest um I because of the the lesson that I'd learned about putting all your eggs in one basket with engineering and then realizing it's the wrong thing, I made sure that th- throughout my BSc I kept a very open mind about what direction to go in. I I didn't want to hedge my bets on anything. Um the one thing I knew is that I wanted to do something with genetics because genetics just fascinated me. Um and I I think the biggest the biggest thing that I realized thinking back and this is the best advice i can give to any university kid who who wants to know whether or not they've got the right major or the right thing is um i every single day when i had an, a genetics lecture i was never bored once and every day i learned something new that fascinated me and i would go home and uh, you know without it feeling like a chore i would just start reading stuff um and and i was so excited to learn and when you've got when when a subject of yours it doesn't matter if it's science law it literally doesn't matter what it is as soon as it ignites that that excitement to learn mm. and you stop feeling boredom or you know you don't want to fall asleep in your lectures it means you're on the right track um and then my uh i i became very interested in a field called population genetics and what that looks at is is it looks at genetic trends in populations um So for example, uh we all have the same genes in our body, right? In our DNA. But for each gene, there are many different variations of that same gene. And that's for example, look at eye color, right? Everyone's got eyes that effectively work the same, but everyone's eyes look different, right? So I really enjoyed understanding why different populations have different trends with what they look like and how their bodies work and you know you and and with that I started doing this research into rotavirus vaccines because I was reading uh, we use a rotavirus is a is a virus that causes a really bad stomach infection in in children typically under 5 years old and um and there is a rotavirus vaccine there were a couple that were released in 2009ish uh and the one that we use in South Africa and it's quite commonly used in sub-saharan Africa is called Rotorix. Now Rotorix has really 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 good results in Europe and North America. But as soon as you come into sub-saharan Africa, that efficacy drops substantially. And we don't really know why. And what my supervisor was looking at is is there a genetic trend that is causing the vaccine to be less efficacious in our populations in sub-saharan Africa uh and through that investigation i became fascinated with the concept that vaccines and medication in general can work so well in one population and so badly in another population when you know ostensibly we're all just the same people right and uh 
And, and that then my, my supervisor is part of a, a consortium called ALIVE, which stands for the African Leadership in Vaccinology Expertise. And they run this master's degree, which is a master of science in medicine and vaccinology. Uh, and it's a really cool master's program. There's four universities in the world that do it, and WITS is one of them. And it's amazing to see a South African university establishing itself as one of the global leaders in vaccine science. Um, and she said to me, Dan, if you're interested in vaccines, do this master's. It's really cool. And here I am. And I couldn't have made a better choice. And, you know, you basically came into this from the outside. So it's not like you always had the idea of doing this. So when looking at, you know, our general perception of vaccines, once you journeyed into this and, you know, became qualified in this field, did you ever have, um, you know, perceptions that you previously had about vaccines that had to, or that went through a change? You know, did you see vaccines differently as you were journeying deeper into this field? Because obviously, um, for the general public who don't have much knowledge on this, we often question, you know, science and there's, you know, all these these questions that need to be answered. So after gaining and you know journeying through this field did you ever you know change perceptions or ideas of vaccines um so i think the difference was quite subtle with me because um being kind of always having an interest in the biological sciences mm -hmm. and always being involved in the biological sciences i knew that vaccines worked i knew that they were safe you know i never i never had doubts about whether or not people should take them yeah um i think I think the, the way that my perception shifted was more about um, the real importance of vaccines. You know, before it was kind of, these are things that we need to take and they really make a big difference. But now I really understand um, how they work and why they're so important. And I understand a lot of the history um, that, you know, I'm, uh, a lot of the history behind vaccines and their development and the impact that they've had on, on public health globally. Um, one of my favorite things to show people is a, a picture of a polio ward from the 50s. And you see this huge ward filled with iron lungs and people sitting in iron lungs. And that space now can be used for labs, for other wards, um, and all of the, and there is, I think there's one person in the world left on an iron lung. Um, and that's because we had polio vaccines. And, um, and that, that was kind of the big shift with me was, was realizing um, that with the way the world's population is growing, with, you know, the fact that we will never get rid of viruses, we'll never get rid of bacteria, there will always be infectious disease. And what this pandemic has showed us as well is, is taking a route of treatment rather than prevention is not good enough. We don't have the infrastructure to treat everyone. And what I've now been shown is, is, is that preventative medicine is the future. It has to be. 100%. And, you know, just for the general public, can you explain to us the purpose of a vaccine in general? So what's the, the core value or the core purpose of a vaccine? You know, in simple you know, layman's terms, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, for sure. The point of a vaccine is to take 
a pathogen, which is an, a, 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 any kind of bacteria or virus or whatever that can infect you and give you a disease. And it wants to train your body to, so your body can learn how to fight that pathogen specifically. So what it does is that then your body gets all this training. It takes a piece of that pathogen. It learns from it. It studies it and it develops an immune response. And then your body tucks that immune response away and it kind of stores it like in a memory bank. And then if you ever encounter that pathogen again, so if you get exposed to it through natural infection, your body says, hey, I recognize this thing and I know exactly how to fight it. And it prevents you from getting the disease. Yeah, I think that's, you know, sometimes with amongst, you know, the vast amount of knowledge that's, you know, put out on the internet, sometimes it's like a simple uh, definition that sometimes is missing. And then people kind of stray into the abyss, you know, assuming and also just not really reading the simple meaning of what this is. Yeah. And I mean, I have a huge, you know, I have a huge problem with the scientific world in general, where um, I feel like scientists are really, you know, we're amazing at discovering and putting out new information, but scientists generally are really bad at talking to lay people. They're really yeah. bad at talking to people in simple terms. Um, and, you know, there's so much information out there. I mean, like all of these major journals have made all of their stuff open access, but it's all really technical, complicated information that if you don't have a background in that area, you're not going to, it might as well be Greek, you know? And, um, and, and one thing I'm really passionate about is making science more accessible to people. And, and I think it's really important that with basic principles in science that are really important in everyday life, like vaccines, it's really important that everyone can have a basic understanding and know what's going on. And do you think that contributes to, you know, there's a general, sometimes it's mistrust, sometimes it's just lack of understanding, but do you think that contributes to the, the skepticism in the science world from people outside of that world now looking in and listening to, you know, various people talking, you know, the fact that we don't understand it, do you think that is a major contribution to people being so skeptical of it? I think that that is, that is the, the, the biggest contributor. Um, I mean, if you look throughout um, scientific development throughout history, but also just generally in terms of the way people interact with each other, it's very natural to have mistrust or fear for something that you don't understand. Um, I'm actually listening to a very cool podcast on uh, Galileo, um, okay. who was the kind of late 1500s, early 1600s scientist who really pushed the, the, the theory that the earth revolves around the sun and not the sun around the earth. Yeah. Um, and the backlash that he got was enormous because... It, it was like, how could you say such a preposterous thing, you know? And, you know, now we look at something like that and we're like, oh, of course the earth goes yeah. around the sun. But the principle of mistrusting that is, very, is exactly the same as the principle of someone saying, well, how the hell can I trust this vaccine, you know? Um, and uh, and I, uh, I, you know, generally in schools, I did biology from a trick. We had maybe like one or two lessons on what a vaccine is, not really much. Um, even like if you do, a, even in my BSc, we did a lot of immunology, but not a lot on vaccines um, and med school as well. Like I've got a lot of friends who are medical doctors 
uh, and in my master's degree now, there are four medical doctors doing it with me. And they've said, you know, the, the level that we've gone into in immunology and in vaccine theory is infinitesimally higher than what they went through at med school. Yeah. So there is a very big problem with, with a lack of communication and education about vaccine theory um, and science in general. I think another uh, contributing factor is the fact that a lot of, as I said, a lot of scientists struggle to speak to lay people. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of scientists can often come across as like, uh, I think quite condescending or arrogant. Um, and, you know, no one wants to feel stupid. Um, and there's, you know, no one also, no one wants to feel like they don't know something or they, you know, and th th I think there's a fear, especially in today's world about being wrong. Um, so, uh, so like a lot of people are very scared to have a conversation with the scientist in case the scientist says, oh, how can you not know this? It's so easy. Exactly. You know? So, uh, so yeah, treating everyone with respect and, uh, and being able to communicate on various levels of skill is really important. Just a, a quick question. Do you think that should be something not necessarily like a module in studying in these fields? Or do you think that should be you know, just a side little thing that you need to actually do just to ensure that you, you, you know, you're actually helping the science world out by, you know, learning how to communicate and spread the, the word more um, yeah. respectfully, if you want to put it that way? I, I definitely think so. I mean, I think that a, uh, a communication 101 <laughs> course would be would be great for a lot of a lot of left brain scientific people yeah. um you know and it's it's uh it's so easy to talk to someone when you can speak the language you know you, yes. can, you can use the lingo and the terminology um and uh and uh, you know i definitely think that a lot of people need uh need 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 a little bit of uh help in that regard and, you know, moving into, you mentioned that you were involved and you did some research on the AstraZeneca vaccine that was, you know, trialed here in SA. Can you explain yeah. to us, you know, that process and then maybe take us deeper into the actual science behind the vaccine? Yeah, for sure. Um, so this, uh, the vaccine, the, the vaccine trial was, I mean, it was a huge privilege to be able to work on it. Um and, you know, I mean, in terms of doing a master's in vaccinology, uh, you know, it's, um, it's been real on the job trading. So, um, yeah, so it's been, it was a real opportunity for me. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to see how the scientific community uh, adapted the way that we do um, clinical trials. And so usually, you know, and there's been a lot of talk about how Usually vaccines take five to 10 years to develop. And how did we get this out so quickly? Um, and that is true. But a lot of the reason why previous vaccine trials can take five years or so is, is not necessarily because that's how long it takes to test a vaccine. It's because most vaccines are not developed in a state of urgency. Most of mm. them are not developed in pandemics or epidemics. Um, and in fact, the Ebola vaccine that, that was developed in just over a year um, has been really successful. And, you know, I didn't really hear many people complaining about that one. Um, but, uh, but in a normal vaccine trial, when there's no pandemic, there's no epidemic, um, we do the trial, we do the phases of the trial one after the other. So you have your preclinical trials, you have your vaccine development, you design the vaccine, you have preclinical trials where you test it in cells in a lab. Those are called in vitro studies. 
and you do an animal model test like with mice or rats mm. and the purpose of that is to say is there some sort of immune response and is the vaccine fundamentally like is it safe right so uh once you've gone through that you can then provide enough evidence to start your clinical trials so that's divided into four phases phase 1 is a very small phase that is focused entirely on safety uh you know what kind of side effects are happening we call them adverse effects so we divide them into adverse effects and serious adverse effects if there are serious adverse effects that are found in phase 1 studies typically the vaccine often won't progress to phase 2 um if the if there's a serious adverse effect that can be proved that it was not due to the vaccine if for example one of the participants had an underlying condition you know something okay. like that then uh, then the, the vaccine can can progress and there is in in all clinical trials there is an independent data monitoring board and whenever there's an adverse effect they review it and they're not involved with the trial they're not involved with the pharmaceutical company they have no conflict of interests they are independent moderators who make sure that the data is clear that the vaccine was not the cause of that adverse effect um and what generally happens is between the phases of the trial so between phase 1 and phase 2 phase 2 phase 3 they are what we they they these the these terms that we affectionately call them valleys of death of vaccines where vaccines typically fail okay. um and because you do the you do the phases one after another um and you know you 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 don't want to pay for your phase 2 if you don't know if your vaccine's got through phase 1 mm-hmm. so the phases are funded independently of one another so but like and that's another reason why it takes so long because you'll do your phase 1 you'll take your time analyzing the data you know there's no rush once you've got the data you can go and show that it needs to go to phase 2 then you can take your time finding your funding for phase 2 start you know and and like that process is very leisurely and that takes a lot of time um it's not 5 years of rigorous vaccine testing you know uh, and what we did in these trials is instead of running the phases phase 1 phase 2 phase 3 da 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 we went we stacked them so we had a huge population of people we were okay. using uh, in our trial we divided them into numerous groups and we were basically running the phases uh, concurrently so we had different groups that were looking at different aspects of the vaccine so we had a phase 1 group that was looking at safety phase 2 group and phase 3 groups that were looking at characterizing the immune response is it good enough is it going to give protection um and we basically then just got funding for all of them at the same time and we had different teams of scientists running different phases of the trial and i think that's important to note because there wasn't much information out on that either like for me this is all kind of new information to an extent um and also just the understanding of why you know we have managed to put out i think i don't know how many vaccines are currently approved right now but there's the Pfizer uh, there's, Moderna there's uh, Sp- uh the Sputnik Pfizer Moderna AstraZeneca are all approved uh and um Johnson Johnson, Johnson I think Johnson. is going to be approved very soon soon 
So I think that's some of the information, you know, about the actual trials are also not related to the public in the masses. So there's all these questions that the public has, and then we often find ourselves trying to find answers. And when you're trying to find answers on the internet, you can find some some very obscured um, answers written by people who weren't even involved in the slightest. So I think that's very important to, to note that, um, and I think it's also a learning curve for everyone. You know, like communication is something that needs to be improved in general amongst all the fields from government to scientists to the public. And um, for sure. what are some of the things that, you know, I mentioned how we've relayed information with you being so closely tied to this trial. Um, when all the the various, you know, bits of information get leaked, even though it's not the true um, piece of information, how do you deal with that and try and educate people knowing that you're not really in power to give, you know, that knowledge to the masses? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really difficult issue. And um, it's kind of like as, uh, you know, as, as the, the team, we're kind of constantly trying to do our jobs and put out fires around, yeah. uh, you know. And I mean, you, you, you have to spend five minutes on social media to get a whole bunch of different theories and angles. Um, and, you know, you, you, you mentioned there, you know, how, how people disseminate information and talk to each other. And I mean, it's not even just people mistrusting scientists. It's, I mean, you, you look at, you know, people, the way people speak to each other when they're behind a screen and a keyboard on social media, and it's, uh, yeah. it's volatile and it's very difficult to have a, a discussion about things. Um, and, uh, and part of, uh, it, it, it's really frustrating when you know that the science is good, you know that you're doing a really rigorous job and you see like the conspiracy theories and you know, like the, the, the um, skepticism. Um, and a lot of the trial information can't be released until, it is, until the data is analyzed and finalized because we, we don't want you know, any bias or any pressure being introduced that could um, that could influence the outcome of the trial. We want it to be done in a really objective way that, that you know, the outcome is based on the data, not based on any external pressures. Yeah. Um, so during a trial, there's only so much information you can release. Um, but I think that there is also, it circles back to also, I think, a, a kind of arrogance of, of scientists where they kind of say like, listen, we know what we're doing and we've said that the vaccine's safe, so yeah. you must just take it and not question it. Uh, which is also unacceptable. Um, but what I would what I would plead with with people is that they try and have a little more patience with with us, with uh, you know, letting us try and get the job done. And then um, you know, when we're at a point where we can safely and and with confidence speak about the findings and the vaccines and the clinical trials, um, that that we will. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's difficult also when people have read something, um, and they develop a strong opinion about it. Um, it can be very difficult with one comment or one Facebook post to try and change people's minds. Um, and, you know, there's also a lot of mistrust of government, for example, 
And I think that what a lot of people are confusing is the government is handling the dissemination of the vaccines, they're handling the distribution, but they, the government has not been responsible for the development of the vaccines. That's been done by pharmaceutical companies and, and scientists. Um, so, you know, yes, we have a history of problematic politics in South Africa, um, but, you know, just because the government has let us down before, it doesn't mean you can't trust the vaccination program because that is not being, that like the vaccines are not being made by government, you know. Um, but it's hard, again, to tell people that because if people think that you're in on a conspiracy theory, they're going to think you're lying to them, exactly. you know. So I have found it really difficult to um, to try and talk to people, to try and uh, tackle some of these misconceptions. Um, and, I, you know, I, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is opening up dialogues about science. Uh, and I, you know, I make a real effort to be respectful to people's opinions. Um, uh, and sometimes I find that that's not always reciprocated from people who... Uh, have you know these really big conspiracy theories and that kind of stuff yeah so it is a, it's an ongoing problem and to be honest we're not exactly sure how to dismantle that kind of thing yeah i think in general you know there's i mean our population there's so many different you know types of belief systems out there versus um well let me actually rephrase that I think because there's so many people in the world, there's so many opinions as well. So it's tough to really be able to have control and try and get everyone the same information because, you know, someone has access to this but doesn't have access to that. So I I don't think we'll ever be able to fully grasp, you know, fake, you know, news and and the, the reading of and actual publication of fake news because, you know, you can't really control it. So... I think it's just something that needs to be looked at further and somehow we can, you know, even if it's 2% better um, or if you change or give access to two people, you know, that one Facebook post goes viral and millions see it. So it's, I think, something that we just need to tackle over time. And, And, you know, it's difficult. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Um, It's difficult. uh, We've also, you know, with the way that society is kind of working now, um, and especially on social media, um, you know, we, we, we're, uh, we have a lot of movements towards the treatment of people in, a re- in an equal way, which, you know, yeah. and, and it's a big problem in the world. But part of that has, you know, really been the encouragement that everyone has an opinion and everyone has a right to be heard. And that is true. Um, and I, but, but, but what is very dangerous is to ignore the concept of expert opinion. Um, And I think that everyone should be able to voice concerns, voice their opinions, say what's going on in their minds. But I think that it's important to recognize when someone is dealing with it on a, you know, on a level of uh, that this is what they do. I mean, it's kind of the same as if you get on a plane, um, you wouldn't go and tell the pilot how to fly it. Exactly. and you can have your opinion about, oh, the pilot did a good job or didn't do a good job. But at the end of the day, the, the pilot knows more about flying the plane than you do. Um, and it's kind of the same way, like, I don't, I, when, I, when it comes to speaking about the economic or the political effects of the, of the pandemic, I will say, this is my opinion. 
But I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist. Uh, I can't give an expert's opinion on that kind of thing, you know. And I, I think it's dangerous to be in a world where expert's opinion is disregarded. Yeah, I think that is also something that, and you know, it's it's such a a fickle thing because social media has grown in its power, you know, and its stance in the way that we live right now. Most people get their information because it is a technically a free source of information you know the cost of data is you know based on where you are and wi-fi and all those kind of things but the point is that it's free to access it um if you at a internet cafe or whatever you can always go and go onto twitter and follow the relevant news people and i think mm. that is where we are seeing like you mentioned the the disregard for expert opinion and why there's so much mistrust because people they think because it's on twitter and these experts are also on twitter if i see a a comment on twitter it means that it's valid because mm. the experts are also on twitter so it's it's such a, a fickle thing to look at um you know with what you've seen over the past i would say over the past two three months you know once the vaccines in the u.s started being rolled out i think it's been a month a month close to two months now um, what are some important facts that people should know about uh, the COVID-19 vaccines, whether they be the Pfizer, Moderna? But for us, obviously, the AstraZeneca is more um, applicable because that's what we will be receiving on the 1st of Feb with our healthcare workers. Mm. What are some of the important like scientific facts behind how the, the vaccine actually works? Right. Um, so before I talk about how the vaccines work, there are a couple of points that I want to just straight up stress. Firstly, the vaccines have been rigorously tested. The AstraZeneca trial globally had 24,000 people. The Pfizer trial globally had 44,000 people. The safety data that we have is robust, is statistically significant, and is trustworthy. Um, secondly, the vaccines... Uh, do not have serious adverse effects. There's been a couple of people who had allergic reactions with the Pfizer vaccine, but those were people who had existing allergies to, uh, like strong medical allergies, uh, and, and were found to have allergies to components of the vaccine as well. Um, so it's important, you know, just to disclose uh, all known allergies before you have any medication, whether it's a vaccine or just a panado. Um, the third thing is the vaccine does not, no matter if it's the, the, the Johnson & Johnson and the Oxford and Sputnik models, or if it's the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA models, the vaccine does not interfere with your DNA at all. It does not change who you are as a person. It does not change what your kids are going to look like. It has nothing to do with your own DNA. Uh, and the final thing that I want to stress is that the vaccines only contain the information required to make the spike protein of the coronavirus, which is the protein we've chosen to teach your, your immune system how to fight. It does not have all of the genetic material required to create an entire coronavirus. So while you can feel some symptoms, like you can get a bit of headache, you can get a bit of body pain, joint pain from the, from the vaccines, because you are tricking your body into thinking it's been infected, 
you cannot get coronavirus disease from, uh, from the vaccines. So those are just four really important points that I want to stress. Yeah. Oh, no, okay, so, so in terms of how the vaccines work, um, it's, it's, it's a really uh, ingenious system. So I'm going to speak about the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine now first. And this is the same model that the Sputnik vaccine uses and the Johnson Johnson vaccine uses. So these, va- these vaccines are what we call um, replication incompetent viral vector vaccines. Now, what that means is we are using another virus called an adenovirus, which we have uh, we've modified to be like the vehicle that delivers the, the, the genetic material of the coronavirus spike protein. So adenoviruses are viruses that cause the common cold in monkeys. And they're similar enough, like the, the systems in a chimpanzee and to humans are similar enough that the adenovirus can infect you. It can um, attach to your cells. But what we've done is we've modified it so that it can't replicate, it can't cause disease. And we've, in the, in the adenovirus DNA, we've taken out the genes that code for the disease, that code for the virus replication, right? So it literally has just become a delivery system. Because what viruses do when they infect you is, if this is your cell, the virus comes and it attaches to your cell, and it pushes its own genetic material, if it's DNA or RNA, into your cell, and it, it uses your own cell's machinery to reproduce itself, and then it gets released. So we've taken away that ability to reproduce, and we've just left it with the ability to attach to your cells and push in the DNA. So what we've done is in the coronavirus uh, um, the coronavirus RNA that is inside the, the coronavirus cell, we've isolated the parts that, that controls the production of the spike proteins. So in, in biology, all proteins are made from RNA, from mRNA, and all mRNA is made from DNA. Um, so we found the little piece of mRNA that codes for the spike protein, we took that out. We then synthesized another strand, so it became double-stranded DNA. Okay. Uh, and then we put that into the uh, into the adenovirus. So the adenovirus is now a it's the uh, as it is now is a virus that can attach to your cells, cannot replicate, and will deliver the spike protein DNA. Okay, so it attaches to your cell, pushes in that spike protein DNA, that DNA gets turned into mRNA, and that mRNA now codes for the, for the viral spike protein. Your cells then say, okay, here's some blueprints, let's make the protein. It makes the protein and then pushes it out of the cell back into the bloodstream. Your body then says, hey, there's something foreign in my blood. I don't know what that is. Let me go investigate. And it'll send your white blood cells and it will pick up the spike protein as being uh, foreign. So all the cells and all the molecules in your body that are part of you are labeled as being self. 
So anytime your body, anytime your immune system bumps into something that's not labeled as self, not labeled as you, it says, hey, I don't want this. Let me kill it. Um, and, uh, and your body will then pick up the spike protein that your own cells have produced thanks to the DNA. And it will then study the spike protein, develop antibodies, uh, and tuck that memory away so that if you ever find it again through natural infection, you'll know what to do. Yeah, that's, it's actually, like you mentioned, it's quite an ingenious development, really, because, and I think also that's what's scary to many people, is the idea when you listen to that, I mean, there is information on what you've just said, but I think because it's so hard to break down that it, it scares people to think, you know, you know, there's a lot of things going on here, and I have to inject it into myself, you know, and as soon as you hear, for instance, DNA, there comes the skepticism that, oh, you know, you guys are changing my my DNA build, that my kids will no longer look what they were going to before I take the vaccine. Um, yeah. So I think it's important to, to really, you know, um, bite down on that knowledge and try and break it down to as simpler terms as possible, like what you just did right now. A question mm. I have for you is, um, you mentioned that the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson have um, a similar build. Mm. Is why, why is it that the AstraZeneca is two shots versus the Johnson & Johnson, 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 which of now today is the uh, 29th of Jan, hasn't been approved yet, but why are there two different ways of um, getting the vaccine yeah. out, two shots versus one shot? So it's it's quite an interesting um, it's quite an interesting uh, question um, because both virus both vaccines use the adenovirus vector. Both of them are fundamentally the same kind of design. Um, what our trials in the AstraZeneca vaccine showed is that we get maximum immune response if we use a two-dose a, a two-dose schedule where we give a half dose first to kind of prime the immune system and then a second dose, which is a full dose. Uh, and then a month after that, we see that people have really high levels of neutralizing antibodies. What was found in the Johnson & Johnson trials, obviously I was not involved in those trials, but I've read a lot of papers that have come out of them. Um, the... The Johnson & Johnson first dose does give a... It does generally produce high enough levels of neutralizing antibodies to give protection. In the trial, they used one-dose and two-dose tests. And the two-dose tests had almost double the amount of neutralizing antibodies. But they decided it was... It was it, the evidence showed that the um, antibody titer, which is the term we use to measure antibody levels, the antibody titers from the one-shot, uh, the one-dose schedule were high enough to give protection. However, it is likely that because there's so much evidence from the trial that shows you get more antibodies with the two-dose schedule, it could be the kind of thing that a booster is offered. Um, I think that in order to get the initial 
mass vaccination done, we can probably use a one-dose schedule of the Johnson Johnson because, you know, if you're using, fundamentally, if you're using one dose instead of two, it means you can immunize double the number of people. And it also means that the traffic through your clinics is easier because people are not returning for a second dose. So you can come get the shot and never have to come back. So logistically, it does make a lot of sense to have a one-dose vaccine. I, I, I would... I, and this is my, my own um, speculation, is that with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you'll have your mass immunization with one dose to get your base level of protection. And I think once we have enough people immunized and the logistics become easier, I imagine that then they'll say you can come for a booster if you'd like to really maximize the protection. Yeah, I think um, especially based on our infrastructure and, you know, just in general, our numbers and just due to the fact that um, at the moment, hospitals are already on high alerts. There's a lot of people in there for COVID. Um, you know, one shot does make more sense and it's just easier on our resources because we've already lost um, quite a few lives in the healthcare sector to COVID. Um, so I think yeah. the the Johnson and Johnson has I think there was mentioning it's like a two weeks away from being approved, and also mm. possibly produced here. So, do you think that going forward would be ideally the the mass vaccine for our population? Um, you know, here I mean this is where it gets really difficult because there's a number of factors to weigh up. So, um. The difference between the Johnson Johnson and Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines and the Pfizer Moderna vaccines in terms of their structure is the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines uh, use mRNA and they don't have that protector. They don't have the adenovirus vector. Okay. So they use a little, they just basically cut out the mRNA that codes for the spike protein, put it in a little fat droplet, a little lipid droplet, and... Um, they basically just like inject that because your cells in your body um, have a fat membrane around them. So substances that are coated in fats can easily just pass through the membrane of your cells. So when they inject the mRNA in the fat molecules, it gets picked up by the cells in your blood and the like epithelial cells around your blood vessels. And then it just the same process happens where the mRNA gets turned into the protein, which gets put into the blood and you get an immune reaction. Um, the difference is mRNA is a lot less stable than DNA. And the adenovirus that is used in the other vaccines will give protection because you, you're putting the DNA inside a shell, whereas okay. the mRNA is not getting protection from the fat droplet. That's why the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have to be kept at such radically low temperatures, yeah. right? Right up until the point that they're used, they can be defrosted. But, but they have to be stored at like minus 20 to minus 80 degrees. Now, in a, in a high-income country where you've got very robust infrastructure, you've got a lot of logistical support, that's easy. In sub-Saharan Africa... Uh, one of our biggest sources of vaccine wastage with vaccines that we use routinely is cold chain management failure. 
So cold mm. chain management is the management is, I mean, it's, as it says, it's the management yeah. of the cold chain. It's the management of the vaccine temperature from production through transport to delivery, maintenance of that temperature at the clinic before it's used. Um, because if your vaccines get hot, they, they fail, they stop working. Because yeah. remember, we're dealing with organic molecules. So um, all organic molecules fail at, at certain temperatures. Um, so it's undoubtedly between the Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines, because infrastructurally, they are much more stable. They don't have to be kept frozen. They can be kept at refrigerated temperatures of two to eight degrees. Okay. That takes a lot of pressure off of our infrastructure and off of our logistical, um, uh, the logistical pressure of it. I mean, for example, you could commandeer, uh, I mean, this is like really silly, but you could commandeer a Woolworths delivery truck that's refrigerated and you could use that to transport the Oxford and, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines, which you couldn't do with a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, right? Yeah. Um, so, so immediately makes delivery much easier, makes cold chain management much easier. Here now is where decisions get difficult. You've got these two vaccine candidates. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, when I last checked, uh, I think is $10 per dose. And it's one dose. The Oxford vaccine is $3 per dose and is two doses. So you're still paying $4 less per person than, than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So economically, that's one point for Oxford AstraZeneca. Now let's talk logistically, traffic through our clinics. We already struggle with, with, uh, with the infrastructure that our healthcare system has. Yeah. I mean, even outside of a pandemic in normal life, it's crazy. Like government clinics get packed, especially when you're talking about like the, for the first two months of lockdown, I was volunteering. I was working at the, um, the Alexandra Community Healthcare Center, um, helping in casualty and doing COVID testing and screening. Um, and, you know, I really commend the nurses and doctors who are doing the job they do because I'm going to be very frank, they don't have a lot that they're doing it with. Yeah. Um, so if you can say, I'm effectively going to half the number of people coming through the, the, the clinic by only having to give a person the injection once, that's a huge pro for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, now one has to decide is, and this, when I say one, I mean the government, government. has to decide, um, is that $4 per person worth, uh, worth it if you are now going to have to deal with all this uh, traffic through our clinics? So it's a very difficult decision to make. What I would, what I would like to see uh, personally is a combinational approach where we have both vaccines. I think that in our um, very dense urban areas where we've got government clinics under a lot of strain all the time, I think it makes sense to employ the one dose Johnson & Johnson. And then I think in, in, in more kind of rural areas uh, or in the private sector, I think it makes sense to use the Oxford vaccine where it's, it's a little bit easier to manage 
returning patients because the, the proportion of the population that you're serving is less. Um, so I think that then, I think that would probably be the most sensible approach. Um, it also depends on how the government are going to roll out the phases that they've said they're going to do it in. So we know phase one is going to be healthcare workers. That's pretty straightforward because they're at the clinics anyway. Phase two is is going to be your essential workers and high risk individuals. You know, and as you go down these phases, the 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 number of people in each tier becomes bigger and bigger. So when it gets to the point that they say, okay, now we're going to start vaccinating general population. We've done our healthcare workers. We've done essential workers. We've done high risk people. Um, are they going to stratify that further and say, okay, you know, from this date, from this month to this month, people with this surname can go, you know what I, you know, I don't know. I'm speculating completely, yeah. but I mean, because there's going to be many, many millions of people and they can't all just rock up at once to a hospital and say, I want the, I want the vaccine, you know? Um, so, so that the government has a lot to think about there, has a lot to think about for sure. And, you know, we going back a, a little bit to, you know, there's a, a few um, rather intense theories out there that, you know, do the rounds on WhatsApp messages and Facebook uh, posts that, um, and even on TikTok, I've actually seen quite a lot of this on TikTok. There was a, a small clip of a woman what it seems like was from the world health organization and it was a very short snippet of a conversation about you know um how well africa is as a testing ground along those lines um you obviously are quite well informed and and qualified in this sector to maybe explain to us why um there is a need to test medicine in various regions specifically because of what you mentioned earlier that some things will work really well in Europe, come down to um, sub-Saharan Africa that we, you know, that might not be as effective um, mm. because there's this huge, uh, and it's also a valid um, perception that, you know, Africa is used as a, a testing ground for, for medicine. And then from, from Africa, once it's deemed uh, safe, you can then test like Western, Eastern, um, the Eastern world. So can you maybe just take us through the, the reasoning why it's important to have trials in you know, Africa and as well as in other parts of the world? Yeah, for sure. I, I, it's a very relevant question. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there is, um, um, there, there is a, a lot of concern, um, you know, uh, coming back. You know, the, the world... Yes, we live in a world that is ostensibly equal now, uh, on paper at least. You know, we've seen a yeah. lot of problems with with um, continued prejudice and racism and 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 unequal treatment of different people. Um, but you know, the world was colonial, colonial, very not long ago, uh, and you know, it was like you know, uh, un unfair treatment of of people of color. Uh, and and open racism was, you know, common, yeah. a stone's throw back in terms of history, and I think that there, you know, there there was a, um, I think that, I think that there is a, a lot of fear um, that uh, a trend has been set in the medical world where like Africans can just be used as guinea pigs, um, but but what I really want to stress is that that's not the case, and. Um, 
you know, as I kind of was mentioning earlier, there's a lot of medications that we see working very well in one region and not very well in another. And um, for this AstraZeneca trial, for example, our three main trial centers were England, South Africa and Brazil. So we had three very diverse population groups that we were looking at. Um, and yes, trials get run in Africa, but it's not before they get run in the West. It's often yeah. at the same time as they're being run in the West. Um, and, uh, and in fact, a huge problem is that sometimes medications get released here where trials haven't been run here. They've only been run in the West. And there isn't data to show how well that thing's going to work in this population. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, um, yes, we're all people. Yes, uh, you know, from a, from a sociological, sociopolitical point of view, there is no difference between one person and the next. But genetically, um, there are different versions of genes. And when you have a population that has lived on the southern tip of Africa for thousands and thousands of years, and you've had a population that's lived in the northern tip of Europe for thousands and thousands of years. There are different, um, if there are different versions of the same gene in, that, in those two populations, they will be uh, propagated through inbreeding in that population, um, and you'll get a version of the gene that exists in this population that doesn't exist in that mm -hmm. population. Now, like I said, everyone has the gene that controls eyes. Everyone has eyes. But why do Swedish people have blue eyes more commonly? And why do, you know, Zulu people have brown eyes more commonly? Yeah. And, and that's not to say one eye is better than another eye. It's just to say those eyes are different, right? And it's the same way with genes in your immune system. There are very important proteins that control immune reactions. And we call these proteins HLAs, um, which stands for human leukocyte antigen, but that's extra. Um, but there are, there are literally thousands and thousands of different variations of the same HLA genes. And you get variations that exist in Southern African populations that do not exist in Far East Asian populations. And you get variations there that you don't see in South America and, you know, there are all these bubbles all over where you have genetic diversity between different populations, right? And it is really important when you're testing groundbreaking medication and vaccines to make sure that the product you've developed is going to work with these subtle differences in the way that the, the immune system is working across the world. Um, so, for example... Um, my main research is in rotavirus and the rotavirus vaccine that I mentioned earlier that works really well in Europe and doesn't really work so well here. Um, it, it, part of the reason that, we're, that we're, we're finding evidence for that is because the genes that control your blood groups. Um, so the rotavirus vaccine uses little proteins on your blood cells, your red blood cells as the, as the thing that they attach to, to infect you. Now, Everyone knows that you have your A, B, A, B, and O blood groups. But in that gene, that one gene, the A, B, O gene, there are 240 different versions of that gene, right? And there are versions of that gene that exist in Southern Africa that do not exist in Europe and, and vice versa. Yeah. And we are finding that there's a lot of genetic diversity between 
Sub-Saharan Africans blood group genetics and European blood group genetics, and that could affect the way the vaccine's working, right? And that's why it's so important that we have varied testing locations, that we make sure that our testing locations are including lots of different populations from lots of different origins. Um, and there is absolutely no uh, preferential treatment in how populations are selected, in how they're treated, in how the trials are run. In fact, it's incredibly important for the, for the um, validity of the data that the trial is run exactly the same everywhere. The way the trial was run for the AstraZeneca vaccine in England, in South Africa, and in Brazil were identical. We had the same set of instructions, right? And, you know, I just really want to make people feel safe that no one is used as a guinea pig. Um, you know, it doesn't matter um, who you are, what you are, where you're from. Um, we, we use a variety of, of different people from different populations in all clinical trials. Um, it's never targeted. And this also brings me to the next question is, you know, the general reception to the vaccine, and it's not to say just in South Africa, but worldwide is very skeptical in general. And I think yeah. um, one of the main things is also based on what you said earlier was the turnaround time and people uh, having the perception that a vaccine takes five years to to produce and then um, push out to the public. So how do we, you know, and you as a person in vaccinology ensure that, or what can you say, you know, people should do? Where should they read the information? You know, how do we ensure that people are consuming the right information? And I suppose, you know, are you shocked by the way the vaccine has been received worldwide as well? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, and it's unfortunate. I wish I was. Yeah. Um, but, you know, since uh, since 1998, uh, the anti-vax movement has been growing steadily. Um, I think in 1998 or 1988, I can't remember which one. I think it was 98. Um, there was a, a, a disgraced physician and scientist whose name was Andrew Wakefield, who published that infamous, you know, MMR vaccine mm. causes autism paper. Now, that paper has since been taken down. He did the most unethical thing, which was he decided on a conclusion and he made up evidence to support it. He said, I want to say that the MMR vaccine causes autism. He then conducted a trial which was very, uh, which used very bad scientific principles, which used very unethical principles, and he fabricated evidence to support his outcome, right? And there is no, and, and one of the most important things in scientific discovery is for results to be, um, to be replicated. Another lab, for, you can publish something, but in order for that to be accepted, a number of other labs around the world independently with no input from you have to be able to reproduce your results. And no one has ever reproduce the results that vaccines cause autism. It's not true. And the damage was done, unfortunately. Yeah. 
and the movements gained, gained momentum. Andrew Wakefield was struck off the medical roll. He was disgraced. He was disavowed as a scientist, as a doctor. But to this day, he still campaigns anti-vax. He still does public speaking. And people attend and listen. And, and the movement has gained, gained huge, huge popularity. Um, and, you know, as I said, people are entitled to their opinions um, it is a free world. No one, no one is going to mandate the vaccine. No one is going to say you have to take it. Um, private institutions can have a policy where they require you to have the vaccines, but that's a private thing. It's not a government yeah. thing. Um, but at the end of the day, I would like people to have an informed decision. If, if, I, if you have considered evidence and you have arrived at your conclusion. If your decision is considered, I will respect it no matter what. If you've, if you've read and listened to the evidence that supports vaccines and you say, you genuinely say, after hearing that, I am just deciding that I still would not like to be vaccinated. I respect that, it's fine. The thing that I have an issue with is people who are kind of blindly against something. Mm. Um, and they don't make an effort to understand before they cast this very judgmental view. Um, and, you know, it's so difficult to tell people where to go and get information because, um, you know, and this is exactly what we were speaking about right at the beginning of this episode is, is the good information is written in the super technical language. Yeah. And, um, and it's really hard to find people who can reliably translate it, for want of a better word, into kind of simple English and put it out. And, you know, the problem is, and yes, uh, public platforms like Twitter have started instituting fact-checking and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the problem is that the internet is free to use and unmoderated. It's unregulated. I can, I can go and post whatever I want on the internet, right? And I can, as a scientist who's got no, I mean, okay, for example, I know absolutely nothing about art, okay? But I can go and post the most controversial opinions about art freely. And who's going to do, who's going to do anything yeah. about it, right? And someone might read my opinion and say, hey, this, I'm going to use this opinion. They don't know that I know absolutely nothing about art. They've just read an opinion that I've published, right? And that's the big issue. I would say, I would say to people, um, use social media platforms to reach out. You know, don't be afraid to ask questions. And I actually put up a Facebook status the other day saying, no matter how, um, no matter how stupid people think you are or say your opinion is or say your question is, you always have the right to ask it. And you are allowed to be concerned about what is going to be put in your body. That is a perfectly legitimate concern. And I, as a vaccinologist, do not expect you to just blindly accept it. I want you to support it and I want you to take it. But I also would like to help you understand why. You know, why does it work and why is it important that you have it? So, you know, my, uh, my socials are, you know, I'm... Uh, we can put up a little thing with my with my socials. Yeah, sure. um, you know, I'm you. Anyone can contact me at any time. Uh, I will do my best to help. 
But, you know, if you have read a couple of things, I would say try and uh, diversify the sources. You know, you can read mainstream news. You can try and read a few scientific magazine articles. If you want to attempt a journal paper, you can try tackle it. Um, the biggest thing I'd say is don't use one source. Use a variety of sources. Make sure that you're looking at a, at a variety of different opinions. Um, and fundamentally, at the end of the day, if you don't know something, find someone to ask. Part of the wonder of social media is not only can you say whatever you want or read whatever you want, but you can also talk to whoever you want. Exactly. Um, and use your network. Try and find someone who's willing to talk to you about this kind of stuff, who, who does have a background in it. Um, there are a lot of people like myself who are very, very happy to, to engage in conversation, who will do it respectfully, who will um, try and talk to you about what you're concerned about and try and make you feel better about it. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to belittle someone who's an anti-vaxxer. They're allowed to believe what they want to believe. They're allowed to feel the way they want to feel. If that's the direction you want to go in, I respect you. Um, if anyone would like to have a constructive conversation uh, where they genuinely would like answer, questions answered, then I will always have that conversation 24 hours a day. And that's actually how I ended up reaching out to you or seeing that post because, um, and it's something I've seen in general and it's not only in your field, but the public as well. So I put out an, uh, put out a Instagram poll on my Instagram stories asking people would they take the vaccine, yes or no. And then I further asked, you know, are they skeptical of the vaccine? So what I found was that there was obviously a fairly big split. I would say there's a majority on, yes, I'll take the vaccine. About 67% said yes. And the rest said no. But the amount of people who saw that poll and didn't answer was much greater than the actual sum of the people that did answer. So that just shows you in general, like people are... Um, firstly afraid of being judged I think that's also one of the main things is like oh he's because I can see who's answered yes or no and I think that's also one of the things that people are just afraid of not knowing and then being judged for not knowing what people deem to be you know common or general knowledge yeah. per se so I think it's 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 such a scary time for everyone because we don't really as general public we don't have the answers and we scared you know, people are scared to ask and it's something that we need to kind of break down that barrier of being afraid to ask questions that concern us. Like you mentioned, we need to be um, reaffirmed in our decision by the knowledge being given to us. So if you can tell us why the vaccine is good and why we need to be taking it, it gives us a reason to say, okay, I'll take the vaccine. But it can't just be that blind association to science like, oh, science is always right. And I think exactly. um, the government are working on that right now. There's a huge campaign underway trying to, you know, just educate people further into, you know, what the vaccine is going to do for us as a population and how it's going to help us, um, you know, move forward, you know, from COVID-19. So I, I guess that makes me want to ask you, you know, are you as a vaccinologist slightly disappointed that you know with our heavy involvement of the the trial with the astrazeneca trial that we haven't been uh, vaccinating already or do you think there's just way more um, at hand with that you know with 
uh, logistics, money, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, un- un- unfortunately, um, unfortunately, that that boils down to uh, politicians and yeah. and financing and that kind of stuff. You know, um, it would be fantastic if they said, you know, hey, look, you were fundamental in our trials, so we're gonna, you know, just mm. give you doses and make sure that you top of the queue. Um, but unfortunately, it's 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 not how it's working. And you know, there are really amazing initiatives like COVEX uh, and uh, the African Vaccine Procurement Initiative. Um, but but ultimately, those are firmly within the realm of politics. Um, and uh, uh, I'm I'm not really. I don't think I'm I'm really in a position to comment on like. The political movements and and how the government is spending money, because you know, quite frankly, I don't know. I just you know, we. I mean, that's that's their that's their thing. Um, what, as a vaccinologist, is upsetting, is the possibility of getting to a point where there's such a disparage, uh, there's such a discrepancy between high income countries and low middle income yeah. countries in terms of the vaccination schedules, where, you know. I think it would be a travesty if America, for example, was was vaccinating uh, healthy teenagers when we still had doctors in ICU not having had vaccinations. Um, and, you know, the, this opens up so many questions about global conscience and uh, and justice and, you know, equality and... Um, equity um, and, you know, should like, like what kind of, you know, should high income countries take it upon themselves to say, you know, we've got our essential people vaccinated. Now we must help, you know, low middle mm. income countries or are they going to say, well, that's their problem. You know, that's that kind of thing. And, yeah. and, um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of cogs in this machine and there's a lot of points at which I think it could go wrong. Um and, you know, one thing I do want to say is, yes, uh, governments are, have let people down before um, and corruption is a big deal. Um, but specifically with coronavirus, I would like to commend the South African government and Cyril um, for the response they've had and the effort that's being made. You know, you mentioned the education campaign. The information they're putting out is really good, reliable. They've they've tried to make it as accessible and in terms of language and uh, uh, sort of platforms as possible. Um, And I genuinely think that Cyril is one of the best global leaders in terms of his response to this pandemic. Um, The speech that he gave on... The what was it? The twenty eighth of December, um, I think, was one of the best speeches I've heard any world leader make in this pandemic, um, and I can guarantee you that that if we had, as a nation, if we had the resources that, for example, Trump had access to during his presidency, um, we would be in a much better position with the leadership that we've had. Um, so you know the South African government has 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 its faults and has made mistakes, but I think in this regard, I take my hat off to them. 
And, you know, with you studying, you know, certain demographics and certain populations, given how we've, as a, as a country, the, the way COVID has spread, what's your take on, do you think that based on our general, you know, you, you mentioned the anti-vax movement, but South Africa is also quite strong in the way we vaccinate from a young age. Do you think that has also been a contributing factor to, I mean, there's a lot of people who have lost their lives, but also there, there have been quite a few recoveries. You know, there's, I think the percentage is 88% at, at, I think as of yesterday, do you think that um, structure that we've had, you know, especially for um, people kind of my age and a generation or two behind have, you know, kind of, built a strong immune not immunity but we have a strong immune system in a sense because we've been vaccinated and have some form of antibodies that can kind of fight through certain illnesses yeah um you know i i think that um generally uh we have a population that is very compliant with um with medical procedures uh and uh you know, we have a we have a, a very rigorous vaccination schedule, um, and we have very good vaccine coverage. Uh, and you know, they, I mean, one thing that's been speculated is is you know, with with TB being such a big issue in in Africa and not in Europe and America, you know, we still take the BCG vaccine, which is the TB vaccine we currently use. And there's been some evidence saying that maybe the BCG vaccine has given some kind of immunity. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that I think that having a, a population that's generally compliant with medical science is is really helpful. Um, I I think that for the for the most part, um, you know, the South African population will get behind uh, the vaccine, um, and and you know, I, also you know, generally with the exception of a few hotspots, with the exception of a few. Uh, uh, a few sort of subsets of the population, you know, the the lockdown rules have been really well listened to. Um, um, the, what we call non-medicinal interventions, so the yeah. mask wearing, the hand sanitizing, the social distancing. I think that that is generally been the response has been very positive from our population. Um, there are, like I said, a few hotspots areas where there have been some issues. Uh, definitely not looking at Cape Town, um, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, you know, it it is uh, it does help for sure, and um, you know, I think you know, for the most part, we do have fairly strong population. Uh, uh, pop- we do have fairly strong immune systems in our population. Yeah. But on the other hand, we also have a lot of big problems. Like we have a very big HIV epidemic. Uh, we have a very big TB epidemic, and uh, you know, those kind of things can then significantly introduce weaknesses when it comes to infections like this. Um, but for the most part, I really do. I really am confident that when the when the vaccine gets rolled out here, I think that a high proportion of our population will take it. And you know what's really important, and you know as you were mentioned that poll you did on your Instagram, and like I said, people can choose not to take the vaccine. That's it's it's their individual decision. 
Um, and But w- what I would like to make people aware of is um, the potential consequence of not taking the vaccine. Because we vaccinate not only to protect an individual, but to protect the community. Um, there is no such thing as a vaccine that has a 100% efficacy, right? Um, say we have a vaccine that has a 80% efficacy, right? If we vaccinated 100% of the population, then 80% would be protected. Yeah. Okay. So there's been this term thrown around called herd immunity, right? And what herd immunity means is if you have someone who is not protected, so say they either have not been vaccinated or they were vaccinated, but they didn't have uh, immune response, uh, we call it seroconversion when someone has a, has a develops protection from a, from, a vir- from a vaccine. So if someone has the vaccine and does not seroconvert, the idea is if, if they're here and they're surrounded by people who, ha- who are protected, the virus has no way to get to that person mm-hmm. because it can't be transmitted through that safety bubble, right? Yeah. So that person, is, that person is protected through the herd, protected through the community. Now, if we have, for example, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine has an efficacy of roughly 70%, right? We need to immunize as many people as possible to achieve that high immunization threshold that will give us, popula- give us herd immunity. And also, herd immunity will only work if out of our whole population, the people who are not protected are kind of spread out. Mm. If you have multiple people who are unprotected together, the, vaccine ca- the virus can still uh, travel between them. But if every person who's not protected is buffered by people who are, then, you know, they're, they're protected by proxy. Um, so what I, what, what I think is important to stress to anyone who is considering not taking the vaccine is I would just want you to consider other people as well. Um, consider your community, you know, your next door neighbor, the other kids in your kid's school. And this is a big problem we have with the anti-vaxxing parents is, you know, you can have a child who's not been immunized and they can go to a school. And even though all the other kids in the school have had their shots, you know, not every single child will have seroconverted. Not every single child will have protection. And that one child that is coming in with no vaccines can bring in measles and then kids who are vulnerable can get it, you know. And and what we beg you to think about is is other people around you. Um, this is a is a team effort. It's not an individual race. Um, and uh, you know, I just if if you have thought about it and you understand it and you're and you're okay with the potential consequence of not being vaccinated. Okay, there's nothing we can do about that. But but if you haven't considered that, then maybe it's something to think about. Yeah, and that brings, you know, so many... I think the this pandemic that we find ourselves in is really um, to kind of emphasize empathy in general because it is of such um, contagious values, you know. So it's things that we are so commonly used to now we can't do and for the people who didn't obey or kind of follow the 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 protocol that lack of empathy then results in death unfortunately which is sad 
but uh, it just shows what we lack in a community and what we also strive in as well so it's kind of just showing weakness and strength at the same time um yeah a question i have for you is i mentioned earlier um that a couple years ago you know we've seen a lot of uh documentaries on pandemics and you know when will the next pandemic hit and then you know coincidentally two years later we find ourselves in COVID-19 and Bill Gates has been at the forefront of many of these conversations Uh, and he I think just because of his his persona and his you know financial power is often associated with you know this conspiracy that you know these things you know why is it that two years ago he said there's another pandemic coming and within a two-year space he's busy telling us look i told you so and yeah you know there's so many questions you know you being in vaccinology you obviously um have a certain grasp of the way these things work do you think and he's mentioned bill gates i think it was recently where he said that there will be more pandemics in the future you know can you explain how do we as a um general public move forward knowing that these are possible um things coming through is it the development in the medical field that needs to be more um intense or do you think it's the government that also needs to start prepping for you know another pandemic that may hit in 20 years time um but it's the infrastructure we could build to then for instance by that time have more efficient lockdowns for longer periods to ensure that we don't spread the virus in a sense because we'll then have been prepared financially to support our population like what new zealand and australia have done versus you know what we had to kind of on and off because we just can't afford to be closed for as long as they have yeah um look i think it's a pretty good it's a it's an excellent point and um you know these 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 ideas that bill gates wants to put chips in you and you know like what you know the idea that he manufactured these things to make more money and you know it's 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 they they really are just ludicrous um i have um uh worked with the the bill and melinda gates foundation my current master's research is actually uh funded by the bill and melinda gates foundation and you know without their involvement in global health we would be a lot further back than we currently are. We have a lot to thank to to Bill Gates and his wife and Melinda. Um, the reality is, you know, I was I was chatting with uh, a guy who's very senior in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's the head of the enteric vaccines unit, and he was saying, you know, Bill Bill Gates, you know, finds these ideas that he wants to make more money quite funny because. He, he says, you know, he says he has enough money. He doesn't need more money. <laughs> and he's actually trying to use the money he has to, to yeah. fund things. He's not keeping it for himself, you know. Um, you know, I wish that guys like, uh, like uh, what's his name? Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy. Oh, yeah, Bezos. You know, yeah. I wish that he, Bezos, yeah, I wish he would take a leaf out of Bill Gates' book and do something with his $123 billion um, that he's sitting on. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I also, did you hear that thing? You know, when uh, Elon Musk said he, he wanted to create this interface and he said he literally wants to surgically implant a chip in your brain, yeah. right? 
And everyone, I mean, it was like Bill Gates was like, let's fund this vaccine. And everyone's like, oh my God, no, he's going to put a chip in your brain. Elon Musk is lit- says, I literally want to cut your head open and put something on your brain. And everyone's like, what a great idea. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. Where do these things come from? And, um, and listen, I can assure you, and I know that people are going to say, oh, but you're funded by the Bill and Malesk Foundation. You're in on it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, but he really, he, like the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does incredible work with public health, vaccine development, water purification, housing, education. I mean, they, have, they, they spend upwards of $4 billion a year per year on, on initiatives around the world. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible. And, um, you know, Bill Gates, yes, two years ago, he was saying there's going to be another pandemic, but it wasn't just him saying it. And a lot of evidence, you know, 10 years ago, a paper was written by Chinese scientists saying we need to regulate the way our food markets work because they're a huge hotspot of disease spread. You know, something's going to happen. And, uh, um, a lot of, you know, that you get people who are virologists, bacteriologists, epidemiologists who are constantly monitoring disease statistics, constantly monitoring um, the way viruses are changing and evolving. And we can see that these are trends. And like yeah. I said, you will never, ever get rid of viruses completely. You'll never get rid of pathogens. As we as we we our population uh, globally grows and we live in an increasingly dense densely populated world um you know we we are bound to have new diseases popping up um and just like how every every animal and organism on earth has evolved to survive the best it can viruses do the same thing yeah and you know you like you know, Ebola did it in 2018. You know, we had swine flu, we had, we had uh, bird flu, you know, and these things will continue to come up. And no one is making them. No one is benefiting from having a global shutdown. No one is benefiting from having people die. The, uh, believe it or not, you know, we actually want as many people operating in our economy as, as possible. And we want our economy to be as free flowing as possible. Um, especially, like you said, in a country like South Africa, where we don't have the resources of a New Zealand or an Australia or an America. You know, we, we are suffering hugely by having to deal with this pandemic. Um, and there is no way that we can prevent further viruses further pathogens from coming up. But what we can do is increase our education on how we live in a more uh, healthy way. We can increase our education on, on the, the, the basic science behind not only medicine and how treatments work, but also behind vaccines. And um, what I think, you know, you said is the answer to put more development into medicine. Yeah. Look, our treatments are good. You know, when people can get to hospital and there's available care, it's generally very good. But what would be even better is trying to prevent people from having to go to hospital in the first place. More development does not need to go into therapeutic medicine. It needs to go into preventative medicine. We need to be putting more resources, more people, 
more um, effort into increased vaccine discovery, production. Um, we need to optimize processes. We need to get to, we need to aim for a system where, um, where uh, you know, we, need, we, we don't want to have to respond to more sick people. We want to try and get less sick people in the first place. Um, and like I said, we're not going to do that by preventing the viruses. We're going to do that by optimizing our, our response to it. Yeah, definitely. I think that, and especially, you know, for us, um, with that initial lockdown, that was kind of our time to prepare. You know, that's what the, the whole idea of that hard lockdown was to prepare our healthcare system, you know, system to um, manage, because obviously we knew the way we operate in our population that there would be quite a few waves and, you know, quite a, a surge of people coming through our hospitals. So, I think yeah, it's definitely an eye opener for many, you know, many fields to be prepared for something of this magnitude, whether it be 40 years from now. The fact is that 40 years from now, there'll be just, there'll be another population yeah. going through it. So we need to be as well yeah. prepared as possible. And what people also don't, sorry, what people also don't realize, you just hit the nail on the head. You said there'll be another population going through it. Yeah. And, you know, even though, pandemics are pretty rare there are epidemics happening all over the world all the time yeah there are pockets of disease that are that are ravaging populations all the time um you know even though we dealt with the ebola crisis in 2018 there is still in central and eastern and western africa there is still a huge ebola problem um measles currently i mean the u.s is having a huge measles epidemic um and uh, and we can't only have this kind of response when it's a huge global issue, you know, like these huge. I mean, I, I mean, I said to someone the other day, where was this global panic and where was this concern when when Western Africa was being destroyed by Ebola in 2018? You know, and why why is it that high-income countries have to be directly affected before they step in and want to offer their resources. Yeah, 100%. You know? And we need to change that. And we need to get more assistance. And we, but, but, but we can't just wait for the... You know, we can't wait for the, the, um, the crisis to actually be in full-blown full form before we react. We have to be preemptive about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um... And also it shows that, you know, because like you mentioned, there has been a lot of um, talk about a pandemic hitting, you know, for a long time now. And the fact is that when it came, you know, we weren't ready. And it wasn't just like South Africa, it was the world. You know, the the first world countries struggled to adapt. Um, and they, they find themselves struggling now to this day. And, and, and in some ways worse than what we are in a sense that the numbers are so great there and almost that they've taken their healthcare systems for granted because they're like, oh, we have the infrastructure. We don't have to be as you know, strict. And now you can see the numbers that are in the US and even in the UK, you know, they, it's, it's quite sad, you know, that, um, and, and it comes back to the leadership and the lack of leadership that's been found, you know, through this time. There's been a few um, reports over the past few days that the um, 
AstraZeneca um, vaccine for people over the age of 55, they're saying that on the second shot, the efficacy goes down. Apparently, there's these obviously AstraZeneca came out and, and said that, you know, that's not true. But a question I have for you is, you know, where, where do these things come from? Because it's almost like the people that aren't involved with these things are coming up with these these reports. Listen, I have no idea where that comes from. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, um, the immune system is a very dynamic process. You know, in newborn babies, it's very bad. And then it gets really strong. And for most adults, it's pretty strong. And then in the elderly population your immune system starts weakening again. Yeah. And it's been a notorious problem with vaccines that it's very hard to stimulate a good immune response in elderly people because their immune systems are kind of starting to weaken. And that's one thing that made our the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine so cool and so good is that we had, yes, we had a 70% efficacy as opposed to a 90% efficacy from Moderna, but we had really consistently good immune reactions across all age groups, including elderly people. We have, so the, the ability of a vaccine to cause an immune response is called the immunogenicity of the vaccine, right? And the ability of a vaccine to cause side effects is called the reactogenicity of the vaccine. The Oxford vaccine has very high immunogenicity in all age groups, with very low reactogenicity. So it's kind of like a very, it's, I mean, it's a textbook yeah. vaccine. It's the kind of figures you want. I would strongly recommend that all people above the age of 65 still go get the vaccine. It will still give you protection. Our data from the 24,000 global participants in our trial has showed that our immune reaction data is very stable across all age groups. Has the the introduction of the the you know this they want to call it the South African variant, um, which is also found in the UK, um, and they they very happy to label it the SA variant. Um, how have you kind of looked at this? You know, obviously um, these things are common. The you know mutation of viruses and and so forth. Has it worried you? And also, kind of put a bit more urgency in the way you would want us to be vaccinated as soon as possible? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate a point that uh, Professor Abdul Salim uh, Karim made. You know, we, we, we really don't like uh, geographically labeling these variants. Um, so the, the variant that everyone is now calling the South African variant, variant is, is the 501v2 uh, variant. And the reason we don't want to, uh, the reason we don't like saying, oh, it's the South African variant yeah. or it's the UK variant or whatever, is because just because that's where the variant was identified, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily where it originated. It originated, yeah. And, um, and what happens uh, when you start saying this is a UK variant or this is a South African variant is people start then... Uh, people start then having prejudice against those populations because it becomes like a blame game, right? And we want to avoid that. It's not 
this geographical region's fault that the virus mutated. That's just what viruses do. Um, and it's got nothing to do with the response of that nation. It's just, like I said, it's just an evolutionary process and it's what virons do. Um, so yeah, so with this 501v2 variant, um, it, it, you know, there, there, there is a, uh, you know, there is concern about what, what impact it will have on the, on the vaccine efficacy. Uh, a, uh, data has just been released that the Novavax vaccine, which is an American company, they also had clinical trials in South Africa. The Novavax vaccine has shown to be unaffected in terms of its efficacy and, and protects against the new variant as effectively. Um, data for the uh, other vaccine candidates uh, in regard, with regards to their response to the new variant is still being gathered. So I'm, uh, I'm unable to comment officially, but in terms of my opinion, um, I believe that there's still a very good chance that the vaccines will work effectively. Um, so if you have, uh, I'm going to use my glasses case as an example of the, this is the coronavirus spike protein, right? Now, at the top on either side is where uh, the the protein actually attaches to your cell, right? Now, when you but when we give the vaccine, we're giving your body basically the whole protein, not just mm. those two places. Okay, so when your body studies this kind of thing and develops antibodies, it doesn't only make antibodies against one spot. Antibodies start recognizing positions all over the protein. Okay. Now, when there's a mutation, obviously one of those spots will change. Yeah. So one of the mutations is in this binding region. So the antibodies that your body had made that recognize that, that specific position may not recognize the new version of it. Mm. But you still have so many antibodies that can recognize all the other conserved regions of the protein that are unchanged, yeah. right? Now, there are different ways that an antibody can neutralize a, uh, a invader, a, a pathogen. The best and most effective way is if a antibody comes and binds to that spot, then the virus is physically unable to attach to your cell because that space is occupied, yeah. right? It's kind of like... If I go, it's, 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 it's exactly the same as parking in a parking space. No one else can park there now, yeah. right? Now, if that parking space is now no longer available because the antibody doesn't recognize it, there's a chance that the antibody that comes and parks in this next door parking space can park so badly that you can't get into that parking space mm -hmm. anymore, right? Like, how often have you seen someone who's just parked so close to the damn line that you can't get your car yeah, in, right? exactly. So that's kind of the hope, that the other antibodies that we have will do a good enough job of interfering with the protein that it won't be able to do its job. But antibody responses are just one component of our immune system. And there's a lot of other factors that can contribute to, to your protection. So in my opinion... I think 
I'm very confident that there are enough other sites on the protein for antibodies to attach to, and there are enough other components of your immune system that there will still be effective, um, effective immunity. I know that there is, you know, like there's, there's been a big thing about the antibodies people gain from natural infection, you know, not seeming to not be uh, that effective with, uh, with, re, with, with being infected with the new variant. But what I also want to point out there is that there's a big difference between natural infection reactions and stimulated infection reactions. So the way that, you know, with one of the advantages of a vaccine is that we can really design and target the kind of immune response we want. We can make it way stronger. And when someone is infected naturally, um, it's kind of a bit of chance involved in yeah. how strong their immune reaction is. Also, with respiratory viruses generally, um, they're not well known for establishing very good immunity through natural infection. Something like measles, if you survive natural infection, then you can have lifelong protection. But like part of the reason that you can get the flu every year is respiratory viruses are not very, like our body is not very good at retaining memory from them. So, so there is a bunch of issues with natural, naturally uh, uh, obtained immunity that can be overcome with the vaccine. So that's why I also say if you've had COVID, still get vaccinated. Yeah. And also, I think what people also tend to forget is even if you are infected with COVID and even if you are asymptomatic and show no symptoms, there are a lot of you know research that's being published on a regular basis that shows that there is still a long, possibly a long-term effect that you may not know of right now, but there may be something that could be wrong come, you know, down the line. Um, so you just don't take the chance really. Cause that, that was yeah. the, the main thing was like, people had this idea that, Oh, I should just go and get COVID and I'll be fine. But, mm. and cause I'm young, and, I should be fine. But now this, uh, the, yeah. the new variant is also showing more, um, it affects more the younger, the younger population. population. And I think that's what people are yeah. starting to, to kind of forget is that this isn't just COVID-19 now. There's another piece that we need to kind of be more careful about. Yeah. You know, there's two points that I want to make on that. And the first is, um, there's actually three points I want to make on that. The first is that a lot of people forget that if you're asymptomatic, you can still be infectious. Yeah. Right. Even if you have no symptoms, you can still pass on the virus. The second thing is um, um, this whole idea of, you know, oh, I'm young and I'm perfectly healthy. I don't have any comorbidities. I'll be fine. You know, the reality is you just, you can't don't take know. that chance. Yeah. I have seen an 88-year-old guy who got COVID, had a slight little cough and was fine. And I saw a 27-year-old person who used to run marathons and was ultra fit die, you know, and you just, you can't take the chance. And especially with the new variant, you know, we're seeing a lot more young people being infected and just, just, just don't, don't take the risk. Um, and, you know, the final point is, you know, people are so hung up on the mortality rate, on the death rate. And they say, you know, people are so scared of COVID, but flu kills more people, TB kills more people, HIV kills more people. Yes, 
we have more uh, high mortality viruses and more high mortality infections. But the reality is that it's not about how many people are dying with COVID. It's about how many people are getting sick with COVID. Yeah. So the death rate is called the mortality rate and the, the sickness rate is called the morbidity rate. Now, if you take a classic, let's take a casualty at a hospital. Typically, your casualty will be divided into your traumas, your car accidents, stabbings, gunshots. You'll have a little bit of TB, a little bit of HIV. You'll have your heart attacks, your strokes, you know, that kind of thing. Now, your casualty is COVID. And there's no space for your traumas. There's no space for your HIVs, your TBs, your heart attacks. The problem with COVID is not that it's killing more people than HIV or TB. Yeah. It's that it's making so many more people sick at once. It's, it's, this is the first time we've had a, a virus that is so good at making so many people sick at any one time. And that's the problem. That's why it's shutting us down. So to all the people who say, oh, you know, well done to everyone who recovered from a, vi uh, from a virus with a 98% survival yeah. rate or, you know, it's like all of that. It's not about that. It's, you know, it's not about the fact that this virus is going to wipe out human populations because that's not going to happen. It's the fact that this, this virus can have such a huge percentage of our population manned down with sickness at one point in time. And, and I want people to stop talking about the death rate because yeah. that's, not, that's not what's important. It's the morbidity rate, the infection rate. That's what's serious. Yeah, and it's, and it's going to carry on getting scarier once we see the long-term effects of COVID because now I, I follow quite a few people in the US just in my field of you know photography and video. And I've seen quite a few people who are now involved in studies for long, they call it long, long COVID or something along those lines where it's the long-term effects of having COVID. So they may have recovered and they no longer infectious, you know, that that's all past, but they struggle to breathe. They can't do, um, you know, ex they can't really exercise anymore because of their, they can't really breathe. Um, when under stress, when their lungs are under stress. And there's yeah. just so many things that are now being only, I mean, you can't really know all of these things, you know, a year ago. So there's things that are mm -hmm. coming to, to the forefront right now that will then hopefully open people's eyes to the seriousness of what this is doing to us. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And, and the reality is that, um, it, it, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take years of research to understand exactly what the ramifications of getting this virus will be. Um, and, you know, it is, in, I mean, it's incredible that, you know, even six, seven months into this, that we had such a good understanding uh, of, of the virus. Because, you know, in terms of understanding a new disease, a year is nothing, right? I mean, like yeah. we have been studying HIV and AIDS for for 20, for 30 years, no, 40 years almost, we've been studying this. And, um, and we still don't fully understand a lot of the dynamics, right? Cancer, we still don't understand the dynamics properly. So, so the fact that the scientific community has got this 
robust of an understanding of COVID after after a year, a year, well, it's 13 months now, is truly phenomenal, really. Yeah. Um, and it is going to take a very long time. And, and the problem is that the the morphology of the disease, you know, the, 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 the range of symptoms is huge. I mean, you can have, I mean, I've got family friends where the husband and wife have both had COVID at the same time. So they both had exactly the same virus and both had completely different sets of symptoms, right? And, uh, and it's, it is, I mean, I've got a friend who had COVID and then was down with pneumonia for five and a half months you know, Jeez. and, yeah. uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, man. And, uh, they're definitely, we have seen people who've, who's, who've, uh, been, who seem to have been like, uh, long-term damaged by, by the, the infection that's going to take a long time and a lot of effort to characterize and understand, but it is another reason why this shouldn't be taken lightly you know, and, 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 you know, I understand and I, I fully support uh, the, the, the fact that a, a person's well-being is more than just their physical health. Yeah. You know, you also have to look after your mental health and isolation and quarantine is psychologically unhealthy for us. And yes, you know, you do need to maintain your social life. You do need to see people. Um, you know, th there's all those basic human needs that need to be met, but they can be done responsibly. Yeah. And when I see, you know, before alcohol was banned again, you know, I would see bars that were packed with no masks, no social distancing, like people even sharing around like a, um, a hooker, you know, like a hubbly bubbly, um, um, you know, and that kind of thing, I think, is is just so blatantly irresponsible um, because, you know, those are a lot of people who either have the attitude of, yeah, I'm young, I'll be fine, or a lot of them could be COVID denialists or kind of say the whole thing is too, like, we're worrying too much. And as soon as those people then experience, you know, as soon as it's their grandmother or grandfather or mom or dad or whatever you know, then they suddenly say, oh, my word, this thing is serious and it's real, you know. Um, but but yeah, I mean, like, I'm not I'm not saying that you should get, you know, put yourself in a hole and never see another human being. I'm just saying find a way to socialize responsibly and uh, and maintain your social distancing, maintain your eyes, your your sanitizing, your face masks. Um, and at the end of the day, the only way that we can beat this thing is together. Yeah, I think that's the main thing that people are sort of looking past is that, you know, it's not to single out anyone in any way. It's just that because this is such a um, social virus that we need everyone to kind of be on board with the same, you know, outset, like this is what we need to do as a, as a community, as a country, as, you know, the general population of planet Earth, really, that we just need to be within one frame of mind that this is the ultimate goal just wear a mask and social distance it's not that hard and i think like you mentioned the mental health side does contribute a lot to you know the general feeling towards this period of time but like you mentioned there is a responsible way to do things um, and i think that's what if people can just keep that in mind we'll get through it eventually like you mentioned it is going to take a long time and we are quite impatient um 
quite an impatient species. Uh, so we just need to look past the, the urgency of wanting to go back to normality right now and just handle what we have in front of us, which is, you know, this pandemic. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, and, you know, I, I think that to an extent, uh, life isn't going to go back to the way it was. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, things are going to, there are some things that are going to be different forever. Um, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I was saying to one of my colleagues, I think it's probably, I could, I could definitely see a lot of people continuing to wear masks even after this thing is done, you know, like, um, I think we're also just much more aware of, of illnesses and, you know, in general. Um, um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, and, and it is mentally exhausting to be on, uh, like on guard all the time and to be worried all the time. Um, but you know, uh, like I said, it's, it's, you, you, you've just got to stop thinking about yourself. Like, you know, there are, um, there are doctors who are going into ICUs every day and they are putting themselves in that, in that position every single day to take care of people. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the mental stress that they're under is insane. Um, and, uh, and a lot of those people are my friends and, you know, I'm very happy to, to put up with, um, you know, isolation for a bit more or, or limited social interactions for a bit more, if it means that they can, they can, they can be out of danger, you know? Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a communal effort. It's a collective thing. And, um, just, you know, take a look at the people around you in your life, you know, the people who you cherish and just do it for them, you know. Yeah. And Daniel, just before we let you go, um, there's obviously been a lot of chatter about ivermectin and the treatment of COVID-19 using ivermectin. Can you, you know, give us a bit of background into the validity of that and, you know, just your thoughts on the use of ivermectin? Yeah, so I mean, this is my um, my personal opinion on ivermectin. Um, so you know, it, it is it is like it is my view, um, but uh, but yeah, this is this is what I think of it. Um, so I'm very skeptical of ivermectin. Um, the studies, the the bulk of the studies that have been done showing that it has an action against COVID against the SARS-CoV-2 virus have been in vitro studies. So they've been preclinical, um, you know, pretty preclinical trials, like in, in a lab setting using cells. Um, it is, uh, it's really not, uh, it hasn't been rigorously tested in, in clinical trials, uh, in the human body, which is what we call in vivo trials. Um, the few clinical trials that have been done have been very short and very small, but like very small. I mean, like I'm talking like 50 to 60, 40 to 60 people. So really tiny, uh, not long term. Um, um, you know, at least it needs to be uh, if it's a treatment plan like this, it needs to be the study needs to go over a, a couple of months at least. Um, I'm very skeptical of it. I would not I wouldn't prescribe it. Uh, and, uh, 
I also am very frustrated at the black market trade. I was chatting to someone who says that uh, from the Western Cape, who was saying that there are a bunch of farmers who are like selling their ivermectin syrup that's for their sheep. Uh, and, you know, obviously the delivery system is going to be different in humans. Um, it's been used in humans to treat scabies infections, uh, but but it is an anti-parasitic drug. It's, it's you know, I, I'm just very skeptical of it. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's really has enough data to support it yet. Um, I definitely, I would rather not take it. And with that, thanks, Daniel, for, for coming in. If there's anything you want to close off on, you know, just to reiterate a certain point, feel free to mention that now. But I will be linking your various social media platforms so that people, if they do have questions, further questions, they can contact you and then you can take it from there. Perfect. Just one last point. You know, there's one of the things that people are worried about having, uh, you know, aborted fetal cells put into them. Um, so the vaccine, the, the vaccines do not contain any fetus cells. It's the, you're not getting any human cells put into you. Um, there is a human cell line that we use in labs. There's a, a couple of them that come from different people uh, where we have just kept the cells growing um, and we use them for research and production and that kind of stuff. So the adenovirus that I spoke about in the podcast that we, uh, that we use to house the DNA for the, for the vaccine, for the Oxford and Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that, um, that adenovirus is grown and replicated and harvested in these in the cell line in these labs so uh, the cells are infected with the adenovirus and then it's you know copied and copied and copied and we harvest it from there so that's that's what it's uh, that's what the, the fetus cells are used for but um but it's not contained in the vaccine um yeah i think just just as a closing remark um you know, I just want people to know that that as the the whole medical world, uh, from medical scientists to doctors, uh, you know, the nurses, everyone, we are working as hard as pos as possible to 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 get this thing sorted to protect the the population. Um, we we care. We are really trying our best. Uh, and it's tough and we need patience and, uh, uh, you know, compassion and, um, and just trust that we are doing our best and the vaccines, you know, I'm, I'm putting my, my personal, uh, personal seal on the fact that these vaccines are good. They're safe. They've been tested. They're reliable and they are important and they are what will make the difference. Um, so think about it, reach out to me if you have more questions. Um, you know, I, like there's a whole network of us who are very happy to, to assist and let's beat this thing guys. Thanks so much, Daniel. And thanks for all the work that you and your team are doing. We really appreciate it. And, um, for, yeah, for anyone who has questions, the links will be down in the description so you can, you know, ask Daniel anything that's, you know, pondering in your mind. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon.